Again today, let me invite your attention to Revelation chapter 2, the church in Ephesus. As we think about this series, here comes the bride, and today we're talking about Jesus as a word for the church that existed in the city of Ephesus. Let me ask you today, I wonder how many people on this Sunday walk into a room like this or you're watching on your computer or some kind of device. I wonder how many of us today feel like we have walked beyond the grace of God. God could never forgive me. God could never use me. God will never be intimate with me again because I've walked beyond the grace of God. Let me say this morning, there's not a single person in this room. There's not a person watching. You have not walked beyond the grace of God. Uh, His grace is amazing. His grace is matchless. His grace is wonderful. But I also want you to know, no matter where you are in your life, Almighty God loves you and he's given you an invitation to come back to him. If you'll listen to him and you'll obey him. He's inviting you today. As I think about this message, the church in Ephesus, I think about companies and think about organizations and even institutions. They're always doing performance reviews. Some of those will be, they'll sit down with their staff, their team, they'll do reviews to say, we want to know where the strengths are, the weaknesses are, we want to know how we can improve as a staff, as a team, and what we're doing. So those are one part of the reviews. The other part of the reviews, they're they're going to meet with some of their key leaders and talk about how are we doing as a company or an institution or organization? Are we carrying out our purpose, our vision? Are we growing as a company or organization? Are shareholders making money? Are they getting benefits from being connected with our company, institution, or organization? So reviews are common in the secular world, but let me ask you this. What would happen today, church in general, but our church in particular, if there was a review done on our church, what would it be like? Here's what we're trying to find out. Are we a healthy church? Is our church growing? Is our church united? Is our church fulfilling the mission and vision that the Lord has given us and the counsel of his word? How are we doing as a church? And here's the interesting part of the evaluation. As your senior pastor, I'm not doing the evaluation. Our pastoral staff's not doing the evaluation. Our deacon body's not doing the evaluation. Denominational leaders aren't coming in and doing the evaluation. The evaluation is done by the head of the church and his name is Jesus. He's doing the evaluation. And the question again, are you healthy? Are you growing, not just numerically, but spiritually? Is the church united? Are you carrying out my mission and vision for you as a church? How would we do in that evaluation? In Revelation 2 and Revelation 3, Jesus is going to give an evaluation of seven churches. And you may want to write down, these are real letters to real churches in real cities. And Jesus is going to use the same concept, slight variations to it as we're going to see, but Jesus is going to speak in to the seven churches in Asia Minor, which is known as modern-day Turkey. Now, I want you to write these words down. What do we know about each evaluation? Because they're going to give us some framework over the next number of weeks as we walk through each of these churches. Look at word number one is pastor. Just says to the angel of the church in Ephesus, right? When the word angel is used, it's talking about messenger. Most theologians believe we're talking about the pastor, the elder of the church. And so it's addressed very specifically to those who are in leadership in the fellowship of the church. Number two is place. 
as you understand, it says to the church in Ephesus, it's a very specific place. We'll see Smyrna and Philadelphia and Laodicea coming up. But the place was not referenced to a denomination. It was referenced to a city. So if an evaluation was given about our church, it would not be First Baptist Church or Southern Baptist Church. It would be First Baptist Church, the church in Clarksville. So it was a reference to a place. Number three, person. Notice who's doing the evaluations. Jesus is identifying himself and is revealing himself to each of the churches that we see in Revelation 2 and 3. Jesus is doing the evaluation. Again, John on the Isle of Patmos was not doing that. He was just writing what the Spirit was leading him, so Jesus was doing the evaluations. Number four is the word personal. Each of these evaluations were personal for each specific church. Church in Ephesus, church in Smyrna, Philadelphia, Laodicea. They're very, very personal. He has a word for those churches, and I believe he has a word for our churches as well. And our church, number five, is process. He used a similar process with slight variations as he evaluated each of these churches. He would give them, and you may want to write these three words down again because this is a part of the process. One is revelation. He's revealing himself to these seven churches. Number two is evaluation. He's complimenting them and he's speaking sobering truths to them. There are really no compliments for the church in Laodicea. And he rebuked most of them, by the way, too. We're going to see that in the weeks to come. But there's revelation, there's evaluation. Then the third word is invitation. He's inviting many of these churches to a new day. Maybe they will look and say, we've walked beyond the grace of God as well. And he is inviting them to come home, to come back to him, and to renew their love for him again. So when you look at these five words, you're going to see these in these seven churches but it's based on revelation. He's revealing himself, evaluation, how are you doing as a church, as believers, but also invitation. Here's what I want to see in your lives, your ministry, and as you go forward. So as we think about the church in Ephesus, understand a little history here as well. Ephesus, modern-day Turkey, Asia Minor that we would say, the city of Ephesus was a prominent city in biblical days. Prominent city because it was a leading center of wealth and commerce. It was an important city also because of the amount of trade that would have taken place in the city of Ephesus. We know this, that Paul, Aquila and Priscilla and Apollos, they established the church in Ephesus on Paul's second missionary journey. We know that John was moved from the place in Ephesus to the island of Patmos. We also know that the place in Ephesus was known for pagan worship in the city in Ephesus because here's why. And one of the seven wonders of the world was located in the city of Ephesus. You may know what it is. It's called the Temple of Artemis. In Latin, it's known as the Temple of Diana. And so it's one of the seven wonders of the world back in those days. And they would have had little idols there as well that they would have sold. So false worship was everywhere. And in the temple, very different than what we understand, but drunkenness was a part of the temple. Immorality was a part of the temple. Prostitution was a part of the temple. And even in Revelation 2, and we'll hear about them a little bit later on, the Nicolaitans, they had a part in that because they believe as God's people. You could live any way you want to, and God did not care. Well, that's not what God's going to say in his word about the practice of the Nicolaitans to the church in Ephesus, but also later. And so can you imagine being a church in that kind of environment? 
wealthy city, a lot of commerce, a lot of trade. Paul's second missionary journey, but false worship, idol worship was alive and well. One of the seven wonders of the world located there, but the church in Ephesus strategically placed to carry out the great commission work of Jesus Christ. So I want you to walk through this with me over the next number of minutes in Revelation 2 when you think about the church in Ephesus. Number one, this, Jesus knows us completely. There's not a person in this room today he doesn't know. In fact, he created you. You are fearfully and wonderfully made. He's given you life. He knows you better than you know yourself. He knows the church in Ephesus and he knows this church as well. And so when you come into this performance review, let's say we do a review. You're going to meet with your supervisor, your manager, your boss, and you're going to sit down together, and you're going to have this review. And so your supervisor, your boss, manager says to you in the beginning, in the review, you're sitting in a chair, and he or she's sitting in a chair, and says to you, you're, you're doing a great job at our company, our institution, our organization. You get a smile on your face, and you feel like you're, you're kind of moving forward. Then, then the person says, hey, by the way, I just want you to know you have exceeded our expectations as an employee. It's it's a good word. And then your supervisor comes back and says, you know, we believe you continue to work hard. You stay focused as you are. You give 110%. We believe you've got a great future with our company or organization or institution. We believe you can climb the ladder success here in this place. And you feel good about that. But what we see in Revelation 2, the church in Ephesus, he's writing to the angel of the church in Ephesus. We believe he's talking there again about the pastor, the elder, the messenger. And then here's what he's going to say. He's going to reveal himself in three ways to the believers in Ephesus. And here's what he says. The words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand. What does that mean? We'll go back to Revelation 1. Always try to allow Scripture to interpret Scripture. So he says in Revelation 1 to end, the seven stars are the seven angels of the seven churches. We believe he's talking about the messengers, the elders, the pastors. So he's ultimately saying there, he is the one who is in control. As your senior pastor, I'm not the one in control. He's the one in control. He's the head of this church. And we want to be faithful to hear his voice, know his ways, and follow his leadership. So he says he's in control because he holds the seven stars in his right hand. And then he says he walks among the seven golden lampstands. His presence was in those churches. And I believe his presence is in this church as well. I believe he's inviting us to experience him and the Lord is here with us. And then he says this, I know your works. There was nothing about the church in Ephesus that he did not know. He knew everything about them. He knew their calendars. He knew their priorities. He knew their behaviors. He knew everything about the believers in Ephesus. And the same is true today. He holds the leaders in his hand. Also, he walks among us, but he knows everything about our church. And so it's compliments. He's complimenting them, and he's going to go over these lists of things that he is appreciating about them as a church. Let me encourage you to write these down. Number one, their hard work. He says to them, I know your works, your toil and your patient endurance and how you cannot bear with those who are evil but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, found them to be false. I know you are enduring patiently, bearing up for my namesake. You have not grown weary. What is he saying to the believers in Ephesus? He's saying you are hard workers. The Greek word there when he says I know your works, it means enduring labor. And it can also mean exhausting labor as well. These these individuals knew how to work. They knew how to serve. Now, it wasn't just a paid staff doing all the work of ministry. God's people were there serving as well. 
Church, I pray you never expect me or our pastoral staff to do all the work. That's why God has saved you, he's gifted you, and he's left you here so that you will serve him as well. We are much better in ministry together than just a few trying to do the works of ministry. And so, but you also understand this, that ministry is hard work. It's not easy. It's not for those who are lazy. You need to roll up your sleeves and work hard. And that's what he says. I know your works, your exhausting labor. You work hard for the kingdom of God. So one, we see hard work. I remember when Pat retired just a few weeks ago. Uh, we had a celebration for him on Sunday night, and then he was with us in staff meetings on Monday, and then we had a breakfast in his honor, and I was able to do a Q&A time with him, and I asked him, I said, Pat, you started in ministry in 1975, and here you retire, redeploy in 2023. When you look at those years in ministry, if you could go back and redo some things and have, have a mulligan, do it over again, what would you do differently? And here's what Pat Van Dyke said. He said, if I could go back from 1975 to now and do it differently, here's what I'd do. I'd spend more time with the Lord. It's common for people to say that. I'd spend more time in prayer and time in the Word. He said, I'd spend more time with my family, which every person I ever asked that question to will say that. And then here's what Pat said. He said, I would work less and minister more. You'll catch on to that after a while. You can work hard and not do the work of ministry. Or you can do the work of ministry and serve hard. And so in this context, you see them here, they were working hard. Number two, spiritual perseverance. Jesus compliments them on their willingness to persevere. They stayed the course. He said, your patient endurance. You cannot bear with those who are evil. You've tested those who call themselves apostles. You're enduring patiently, bearing up from thy namesake. You have not grown weary. What he's saying is you have, been, you have practiced spiritual perseverance. You have stayed the course. One of the things we noticed when we were in Scotland a few weeks ago, we saw these beautiful cathedrals. That at one time they were centers of where the gospel was proclaimed and missionaries were sent out. But you look at them hundreds of years later and here's what you'll see. Now they're bars or they're bed and breakfast places or maybe they're rubble because they've literally caved in. They've decayed and the facility is just crumbling around there. It's heartbreaking to see that. Those churches did not persevere when the, when the going got difficult. I remember one time we were in Kentucky serving and there was a church in our area, growing area of our county, growing area of our city, but they were just declining. They were down to just a few people. And so another pastor and I called them one day, their pastor. We wanted to meet with him. We go over to, to the office where, his, where the church facility was at. We wanted to meet with him. In no way were we trying to take this church over. We just said, we would just like to help you. I mean, they, they were down to just a few people. Their facility had issues. You could just see it on the outside. Had not been kept up very well. And we said, we're willing to help you. We can send some, some laborers out there to help spruce up the facility. We can send some people out here to help you with music. We can send some folks out here to help you with Bible studies. We can help you move forward as a church, growing area, reach more people. Pastor was appreciative. He said, well, let me get with our people and we'll be back in touch with you. A week went by. He called on a Friday morning and, and the other pastor and I went out and met with him on a Friday afternoon to kind of hear what did they what were they willing to do? How could we help them? How could we serve them? And we had some small talk and then the pastor said this, we sit down together as a church, small number of people. We talked about your offer to help us and we appreciate that. And then his words have just literally been burned into my mind because I'm gonna give you the exact quote that he said that Friday afternoon in reference to the church. 
He said, we appreciate your offer to help. That's kind of you all. We have met together as a congregation. And he said these words. He said, we decided that we had rather die than receive help. We left his office heartbroken. And you know what happened to that church? They died. Fast growing area of our county, great opportunities, but they were not willing to persevere or even crucify a prideful spirit and to ask for help. So when you look at the church in Ephesus, they were hard workers, spiritual perseverance. Number three, doctrinal purity. They, they looked at, they were faithful to God's word. They were faithful to be faithful to say, God, we value those who are in leadership tested the apostles, figured out who was not true. And so they were, they were looking at doctrinal works and they were pure in those. There's a word of challenge for us in that. Just because somebody comes to you and, and looks like a Christian, somebody comes to you and maybe carrying a Bible, somebody comes to you and use all the right Christian language does not mean that person is a believer in Jesus Christ. I remember serving in Asia many years ago and and they talked about the underground church. I was, I was hanging out with an underground pastor, incredible young man who had a passion for Jesus Christ. And they talked about people who would come into their church in those underground house churches. They would come in there. They, they had Bibles. They knew all the right Christian language. They played the part very well. Truth of the matter, they were not believers in Christ at all. They were spies. They were trying to figure out who the house church pastor was so they could arrest him or persecute him or kidnap him. And so they always had to be on their toes because just because someone looks the part of a Christian, carries around a Bible, uses the right language, does not mean that person knows Jesus Christ in his life. But we also know this, just because somebody has charisma as a leader, just because someone has credentials, does not mean that person is called of God to lead. And so what is he complimenting that? They were pure in their doctrinal beliefs because they wanted to do the right thing. Those who are believers and those who are leaders. But here's what we know. Jesus knows us completely. Number two, Jesus loves us unconditionally. Now you go back again and you're in this personal and performance review. You're sitting in a chair. Your supervisor's sitting in front of you. He or she's talking about your work ethic and what you're doing. You've heard words like, you know, you're doing a great job at our company. You have exceeded our expectations. We believe you've got a promising future in our company or organization, institution. And here's what's going on in their mind. You're thinking about, well, I think the next words coming out is, I'm probably going to get a raise or a promotion. I think the next words may come out is, I may get the, uh, a parking spot close to the door. You know, what comes out? Well, I may get the corner office down. It's got the window view. That may be coming my way next because listen to what they're saying. And then all of a sudden, there's the word but comes into play. And you know everything is getting ready to change. Jesus, revealing himself to this church in Ephesus, gives them all these enduring qualities about them. And then he comes around and he says this. He says, I know you're enduring patiently, bearing up for my name's sake. You've not grown weary. And then he says, there's the transition, but. But, he says this, I had this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Can you imagine them hearing that sobering comment? I, I know your church calendar, you are busy. You've got activities, you've got ministries, you've got meetings, you've got all these things going on as a church. 
Oh, you're, you're trying to be faithful to the word. I mean, you're, you're looking at those who are believers, those who are leaders. I appreciate the purity which you bring to all that. He's complimenting them all that. And then he comes in this transition to say, but I want you to know this. I have this against you. You have abandoned. You have forsaken. You have walked away from your first love. What do you mean by that? You don't love me like you once did. What a strong statement to the church in Ephesus. If you go back to Ephesians, Chapter 6, you look how that ends. And Paul, again, writing on the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, says, Peace be to the brothers and, and love with faith from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 24, he says this, Grace be with all who love our Lord Jesus with love incorruptible. Other translations say, Who love our Lord Jesus Christ with an undying love. You have to realize on the calendar, the time space, Paul writing to the believers in Ephesus here in chapter 6, and he talks to them about their love incorruptible, their undying love for Jesus. Around 30 years later, he makes this statement here in Ephesians chapter 6, Revelation 2, about 30 years later. Now the word is from Jesus, the head of the church, you have abandoned, you have walked away, you have forsaken your first love, which who is me? Can you imagine that? A church goes from this undying love. 30 years later, you don't love me anymore like you did. Church can happen so, so fast. Here's what I want to encourage and challenge you with. It is a slow, slow fade. What do I mean by that? You generally don't wake up one day and say, I no longer love Jesus. It's just a slow fade. It's a process. One day you're here. Another day you're here. Another day you're here. You're drifting along in life. Then all of a sudden one day you realize, I don't love him like I once did. My commitment is not what it used to be. My time with him is not what it was 5, 10, 15 years ago. Something in my life, something in my heart has shifted because I'm not the person that I once was and I'm not loving him the way he wants me to. You and I can abandon, forsake, walk away from our first love who is Jesus Christ himself. Look at these two words. One is ask. I just encourage you when you come to this place in your life, and we're going to talk about this in just a moment, some things you have to ask. How in the world does an individual believer, how does a church abandon, forsake, walk away from their first love? How does that happen? Again, it's a slow fade. It's because we just get busy with so many activities. We don't have time to spend with him like we once did. It's because opposition has come our way or division has come our way or the enemy has attacked us. What is causing us, what has caused us even to walk away, to abandon the love that we had at first? What is that? Then the second word is analyze. Somewhere you have to analyze your own life like I need to do in my life and say, Jesus, am I loving you the way you want me to love you? And you just start taking when it comes to Bible study. Am I doing that out of devotion for Christ or am I doing it out of duty because I don't want to feel guilty? When it comes to being involved in the fellowship of the church, worship as we gather together, Sundays, Wednesdays, other time, am I gathering with God's people because I made a New Year's resolution and I don't want to break that or I want to get somebody off my back? If I go, they will no longer talk to me about going. Is that what I'm doing? Or am I gathering with God's people because I love Jesus with all of my life? So you got to ask, how do we forsake him? How do we abandon him? But also you've got to come to analyze what am I doing in my own life when it comes to worship, when it comes to Bible study, prayer, when it comes to witnessing, when it comes to serving. Am I doing that because I love Jesus or am I doing that so that I don't feel guilty or bad because of what somebody else may say? 
he says to the church a sobering, sobering comment. I have all these things for you, but the sobering statement is, but I have this against you. You have abandoned the love you had at first. I want you to know this. Even though he knows us, even though you may have walked away from your first love, you've walked away from the intimate relationship that he desires with you, he still loves you. You have not walked beyond grace in your life, nor has this church. Number three, Jesus calls us tenderly. The performance review started out super, super well. Oh, you're, you're doing great. Great employee for our company. You've exceeded our expectations. You've got a promising future here. You're thinking all these glowing things are getting ready to happen to you. More money, more position, uh, a greater opportunity for you. And then all of a sudden this transition happened. But, and then there's some critical comments in there. Here's some things you need to improve. Here's some things not going well. But I love this evaluation because Jesus did not leave them there to say, you have abandoned, walked away from the love you had at first, but I'm calling you to come home. I'm calling you to come back to me. And here are three things I want you to do as a church because you are not beyond grace. I love you and I'm calling you to come back to love me the way you once did. And what is he going to say then? I want you to write these three words down. The first word is remember. He says in this passage, he says, you, you have, if you walked away from the love you had at first, and then he says, remember, therefore, from where you have fallen. Remember. It takes time and effort to remember. But you have to remember, here's where I was. Here's some decisions I've made over time. Here's where we were as a church, but here's where we are now. He's calling the church at Ephesus to remember from where you started. This is where you were 30 years ago. You loved me with an undying love, but now you have abandoned the love you had at first. You need to remember where you were and where you are because I love you too much to leave you that way. I'm calling you to come back to me. You have to remember. It's a powerful thing. I remember even in God's word, I was thinking about this this weekend in Luke chapter 22. Peter, again, Peter was always outspoken. He was always out front of everybody. And Peter said to the Lord one day, he said, look, I'm willing to die for you. I'll do anything you ask me to. And what did Jesus say to him? Peter, you don't even know what you're saying. I mean, you tell me you're going to die with me and you're going to do all these things, but you're going to deny that you know me before this day is out. You're going to hear the rooster crow three times and then you're going to deny me and even your relationship with me. Peter, I'm not ever going to do that. And then Luke chapter 22, here's what happened. And immediately while he was still speaking, the rooster crowed. Can you imagine as Peter hearing that rooster crow, knowing what Jesus told you, you're going to deny me. You're going to forsake me. You're going to walk away from me. The rooster is going to crow. And then here's what happened. And the Lord turned and looked at Peter. Can you imagine seeing the eyes of Jesus Christ for Peter? He confessed he'd die with him. He'd do anything for him. You don't even know what you're saying. You're going to deny me. He hears the rooster crow with his ears. And then his eyes, what he looks and he makes eye contact with the son of God and savior of the world. And he sees Jesus and Jesus sees him. And then here's what happened. And Peter remembered the saying of the Lord. He remembered. And then here's what happened after that. And how he said to him before the rooster crows today, you will deny me three times. And he went out and wept bitterly. He remembered. Some of you today need to remember. On Friday, my dad, his birthday would have been this past Friday if he'd still been living. 
And Angel and I had the opportunity of meeting my brother and his wife in Bowling Green. And we went and had lunch together. And we spent probably a couple of hours sitting there together just remembering memories of my dad. We laughed, brought smiles to our faces just to, just to remember. It's a healthy thing to remember. I want you to remember. Where, where were you when you got saved? In the 1970s, where was this church? As you remember, where are you now in relationship to Christ? Where is this church in relationship to Christ? He's calling them, he's calling us to remember. Number two, repent. He called them to repent, change directions. That means it's with your mind, but also your heart. You're going in this direction. I'm calling you to repent, which means change direction. I'm calling you to stop going that direction and come back to me. He's asking the church in Ephesus to repent. In fact, he asked them two times to do that. And so you'll understand, as you remember, he's also calling us to repent. If you realize you're not where you used to be, you have drifted, you're no longer loving him the way you once did, he's calling you to change directions and repent. He's calling you to come back to him. That's an invitation of love to you and me, that you can have a new day. You can come home. The Father wants you back. You can repent. You can change directions. You can turn from your sin and turn back to Christ. That applies to individuals. That applies to couples, marriages, churches, and even nations. We can come back. Third word is the word repeat. He says to them, I want you to repent. And then he says, I want you to do the things that you did at first. You need to go back and start doing what you used to do. Because here's the truth. Then he gives them these warnings that if you don't do this, I'm going to remove your lampstand from his place. What does it mean? My presence, my glory, my power. You're going to do these things on your own. Oh, you can have ministries. You can have activities. You can have meetings and never experience the presence, power of God in life. And, and church, I don't want to do that. I mean, I don't want to function as a church without his presence or without his power. I want to live in his presence and serve as a result of the Holy Spirit's power in life. Make sure, again, we love him. You need to repeat some things. Now, over the next few minutes, I want to ask you just a few personal questions. For you to think about, again, you're, you're, you're a kid, you're, you're a student, you're an adult. When you look at your life, can you go back to a period in your life where you were on fire for Jesus Christ? I remember when I got saved and he called me into ministry, it was ignorance on fire for me. I didn't know much, but I was sure passionate about Jesus. What about you? Can you remember a time in your walk with him where you were on fire for Jesus Christ? And, and if that fire is no longer there, let me ask you, what happened in your life? What happened to the fire? What happened to the passion? What happened to the zeal that you're serving Christ and you're making him known and you're walking in relationship to him? What happened in your life? He's inviting you to remember. He's inviting you to repent. He's inviting you to repeat what you did at first. You can have the fire of Jesus back in your life again. What about you? What about the fire in your life? Let me ask you this. There are many people I believe in this room who need to get saved today. You need a personal relationship with Jesus Christ, but many people don't get saved because they're afraid of what other people may think or what other people may say. Listen, I just encourage you, if that is you, crucify pride and take a stand and live for Jesus Christ in your life. He wants you to know him and he wants you to live for him. 
Because you can live for him among family and friends and brothers and sisters in Christ. And if you can't live for Christ in this room, how are you going to live for Christ in this world? He wants you to know him. He wants you to follow him. And he wants to use your life. But if you need to give your life to Jesus Christ, he's the only way to be saved. Surrender your life to him. If you need to be baptized, don't delay another week. Say yes to Jesus. Join this church. Surrender in ministry. Confess your sin. Be obedient to him. Remember, repent, and repeat what you did at first. Let me ask you this. What about your time with the Lord Jesus Christ? Is it everything he wants it to be? When you look at your time in Bible study, you look at your time in prayer, you look at your time singing songs of praise, you look at your time that you spend witnessing and serving him, is it everything that he wants it to be? How many of you would say last week, I gave you a challenge of being in the Bible seven days in a row. How many of you would say you did that seven days in a row and you're continuing on? How many of you say you didn't even do it the first day? How many would say, I only really pray when I've got a need, my back's against the wall, or when there's a crisis and I don't know the way out? How many of you would say, I come to church, I gather with God's people when it's convenient, when we're in town, there's nothing else on the calendar, when it fits our schedules versus how many would say, God, we are surrendered to you? How many of you are looking for opportunities to witness for Jesus Christ in your family, at your school, in your workplace, in your rhythms of life? You're ready to share the good news of Jesus Christ with whoever you're around. What is your time with Jesus like in your life? Is it what it used to be? Is it grown or is it dissipated? When it comes to your walk with Christ, are you, are you walking toward Jesus or are you walking toward the world? And so how do you know that? Well, just look where your feet is pointed. And they'll tell you if you're walking toward Jesus or you're walking toward the world. And then let me ask you this last question. Lower level, on the sides, up in the balcony, watching somewhere around the world. How many of you today are honest enough, courageous enough to admit that you have fallen out of love with Jesus? How many of you would say that? Church, I want to ask you, have we fallen out of love with him? Are there activities, there are programs, there are ministry, there are meetings. But are we doing those out of duty or are we doing those because we love him? Can you imagine this scenario? A spouse comes in one day, been married 25 years walks in the door and says, hey, we need to have a conversation. Husband and wife sits down at the, at the dinner table and one of them says to the other, I want you to know I don't love you like I used to. My love for you has faded. But here's what I want us to do. I'm not going to walk out. I want us to continue to eat together. We'll continue the vacation together. We'll celebrate holidays together. We'll spend time with the kids and grandkids together. But I want you to know I don't love you like I used to. Is that okay? There's not any of us in here would say that's okay. It's absolutely not that's not okay. Same is true in our relationship with Jesus. Let me ask you again, how many in this room, how many watching, just to be honest, how many of you have fallen out of love with Jesus? Here's the good news. He's not finished with you. You've not walked beyond grace 
He's asking you to remember. He's asking you to repent. And he's asking you to repeat. You can come back to him today. He wants that kind of relationship with you. He gets warnings to the church in Ephesus. If you don't do that, you don't repent, I'll remove your lampstand. But if you do this, I'm going to be intimate with you in your life. You can have that same relationship. We can have that same relationship with him. I want us to bow together this morning. We're going to sing an, an old invitational hymn, Softly and Tenderly, Jesus is Calling. And I want to ask you in the room or those who are watching online somewhere around the world, if you need to give your life to Jesus Christ, he's softly and tenderly calling you. You need to follow him in believer's baptism, he's softly and tenderly calling you. You need to join the fellowship of the church, he's softly and tenderly calling you. You need to confess sin that you have fallen out of love with Jesus. You're not loving him like you once did. You're doing a lot of great things. You've just abandoned the love you had at first. He's softly and tenderly calling you. He's calling you in the ministry. He wants you to surrender your life. He wants you to serve him. You don't know exactly what to do. We're here to help you. He's softly and tenderly calling you. Our pastoral staff is going to be here in front. I'll be here. Our prayer team is going to be here as well. If you're watching online, you can respond to us on the platform you're watching on and we'll respond to you. But this day, how is the Holy Spirit working in your life? And how do you need to obey him? I plead with you today. If you need to get saved or you need to be baptized or join this church or make a spiritual decision or confess your sin and come back to your first love, who is Jesus, do not, do not hesitate, procrastinate, put that off to another week. Obey the leadership of Jesus today. He is softly and tenderly calling you. And you're coming to him, not simply us. We're here to serve him and to help you experience his amazing grace. So let's pray. Father, this morning in this invitation, we pray for the leadership of your Holy Spirit, the power of your Holy Spirit, and we pray today that individuals, couples, families, even us as a church, we will walk out these doors today with a clear declaration, Jesus Christ, we love you. And so Father, in this invitation, we're inviting people to come to you and experience you as you softly and tenderly call us to you. May we obey, and I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand together today. We're going to sing this great invitation hymn. You come this morning as the Holy Spirit, and as Jesus calls you, you obey him as we sing.